please welcome to the stage Irenison Okoji. Hi everyone. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit lawyer. Um, thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, so I'm going to read from my short story collection, Speak Gigantula. I'm going to read a story called Following, which is about a woman who takes, uh, finds a tiny man in her garden. She takes him hostage. Thank you very much. That's better. <laughs> she takes him hostage and begins to torture him. So yeah, put your seatbelts on. This is Following. I plucked you from the garden like a root vegetable. A tiny man, you still had soil in the creases of your skin after I dusted you off on the oak kitchen table. You pointed at me. We studied each other as if we were foreign objects. You spoke in a low, guttural language I didn't understand. Your arms waved at the light breaking in my eyes. I stared at the tiny slits in your miniature penis, growing it with my mouth. The garden door groaned open. A piece of torn white plastic bag blew in. I remembered the fortune teller then. I remembered paying for a flower that died on the way back and being handed white seeds after a loaded smile. That night, I'd slipped one seed beneath my tongue and planted the rest only for things to grow in sleep. That was three months ago. Now, you jumped up and down on the table, bearing jagged teeth, curling your hands into fists, I hunched down, held a finger to my lips. Quiet, I ordered, or I'll put you in the freezer for a few hours. You stopped then, understanding my tone perfectly. You smelled of soil and dampness, of things newly born. I pressed my lips to your face, wanting to swallow you whole. Bath time, I said, pleasant, almost chirpy. I rummaged through the kitchen cabinets, implosions playing noisily in my head. I filled a deep plastic bowl with warm water and soaked you down as you wriggled reluctantly. Be still, I instructed. Slick from soapy water, you dodged my grass, settling into sly limbs. Bitch, 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 you hurled, suddenly speaking English. The words were a rope dangling between my organs. I grabbed you and dumped you in the cutlery drawer, slamming it shut. The clatter of utensils followed me to the sitting room where the widescreen TV waited. I flicked it on. Images of you rolling between knives and forks interrupted my programs. Later, I fished you out. You were bloody and smiling. Ha 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 ha, set me on fire, find the matches. Your grisly smile stretched, threatening to leave your face. I carried you upstairs, wiped your cuts with cotton wool, watching them become blood clouds in my hands. At night, I plied you with vodka. It was funny to see you stumble around drunk beneath the cruel glow of flickering candlelight. When you collapsed, I pressed my ear to your chest, comforted by the sound of your heavy panting. I bought a yellow hamster wheel that squeaked. It sat by the crack on the white window ledge in the bedroom. My eyes returned to it repeatedly, as though it was a small piece of thunder waiting to snag the wheel. Running on that wheel kept you busy and resentful, a tiny fist under the world's crinkly skin. The sound of turns haunted the rooms. I heard it while drying dishes and polishing cabinets downstairs, the house pictures face down. It bounced off the thin silver hands of my leather watch. 
At times I saw you rushing towards me, waving your fists and talking in another language I couldn't understand. And the wheel had replaced your right leg, squeaking loudly, punctuating the sentences of an unfamiliar language. The next day, I served you a portion of pasta coated in a wild mushroom and leek sauce. Please eat, I said, pushing the saucer of steaming food towards you. Five minutes earlier, you'd torn clumps of matted hair from your head. It lay next to the food as though part of a twisted menu. You took a teaspoonful. I watched your lean, changeable face for approval. This isn't very good. I wish you'd disappear. You scrunch your features up. The words formed a stone map in my gut. Later that evening, you ran on the yellow wheel till it became snippets of a life spinning beneath your feet. The night was a canvas studded with stars, morphing from one day to the next. In its sky, we made love on a knife's edge, blinded by the blood from our cuts. We sat in my white bathtub under a sea. Above, a man wearing a tattered black trousers played the piano, Beethoven's Symphony 9, to us taking our clothes off. Clothes that became fish in the grip of ripples. A minute or so later, a polka dot fish swam past. Sorry, 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 you muttered at me, as though it was a mantra. Why are you telling me this here, I asked, a naked woman next to a little naked man. It's so blue, you laughed, like waking up and having a different lens, and because things lose their definition here. Just then, a white and gold packet of Marlboro lights floated. We took deep breaths, tasting cigarettes on our tongues. Well, it's shitty. It's shitty of you to say my pasta wasn't good. I pointed my finger accusingly. It felt like slow motion. I didn't say you were a bad person. I said your pasta was average. Sorry you cooked a crappy meal. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Mouth over my belly button, you pulled three threads. The piano man played frenetically. I sensed urgency in his strokes. His reflection was a shimmering looking glass. Your mouth curled over my nipples, sucked gently. The sweet sensation felt like falling into a trap. The bathtub spun away. Fish made from cotton and polyester wrestled things down into the bed of the sea. Only I can see what they were, distracted by tiny tremors of pleasure spreading over my body. The coolness of the water kept me semi-alert. I noticed that the fish were wrestling memories. Images of me laughing on a bridge, dancing in the supermarket aisle buying a lamp with the half-lizard woman emblazing on the shade. In each one, the grip of someone holding my hand just outside the frame loosened. I brought you here because... You left the sentence hanging, strung up on the three threads that tugged it away. Why are we having this conversation here? We came up for air, back in the tub with cold water slushing down the sides. Our clothes stuck to dimpled bodies, a wooden afro comb had fallen in and was unpicking a tide. I held you in my hands as you tried to scramble off. You were speaking Japanese, and I could have sworn you did that on purpose. In bed, I tossed and turned. I worried about all your possible routes of escape. Through a watermark in the bathroom ceiling, hidden in a beer bottle I'd accidentally throw away, disappearing into a pause from a conversation outside. The following morning at breakfast, you began to speak a language that sounded like Arabic. 
crumbs of toast spilled on the table as you talk. You spoke this dialect running up my thighs, eyeing the front door from the thinly carpeted staircase, as if you wanted to squeeze your limbs through the keyhole. You watched my face. I waited for you to walk into my iris and become a tiny silhouette trapped there. I stuck needles in your skin to silence the noise inside my head. I made you become a doll. When bulbs of blood appeared, I used them to color the sea beneath the ship I'd drawn. Days passed. A week became a fortnight and then a month. Our dysfunctional routines continued. I blindfolded you and rammed cockroaches down your throat, tied you inside bags of rotten fish and listened while you vomited. I stuffed small things inside my vagina, forcing you to find them as I stroked my collarbone. We went out on day trips. You stayed in my pockets on rumbling trains. The feeling of you borrowing reassured me. You tried to grow other heads in there, between the seams and warm lining. I put a stop to that, squeezing them until they disappeared. On one outing to the Science Museum, you spoke in Swahili. I had become used to these random bursts of language and travelling by tongue. A bank holiday Monday arrived, bright and breezy. In the morning, I found you beside my wardrobe, clutching the leg of a navy pair of men's trousers. Tears ran down your cheeks. I was emptying the bins when you rushed through the half-open door. Horrified, I watched you duck beneath the small arched gate, past the smattering of cars lining the streets and over to the other side. The bins dropped with a thud. My heartbeat quickened. The purple flannel dressing gown I wore came undone. I was barefoot, but there was no time, no time to run back in and grab shoes. I scrambled after you. The warm concrete was hard and unforgiving beneath my feet. You were surprisingly quick. I could just about spot your tiny figure in an ill-fitting tracksuit I'd made, darting into a side path towards the main road. My mouth felt dry and grainy, as though coated in sand. I ignored the puzzled glances of passers-by. I was too busy trying to breathe to produce a survivor's stroke for an indoor sea that had slipped outside. The smell of carpet pine clung to my nostrils. I stepped on a flattened ginger beer can, fleetingly acting as a single shoe. Then, we were both in the wide, slanting road, wild-haired and wild-eyed. I dove to grab you, into the sound of tires screeching and engines humming like bees. Car horns screamed. The sting from falling on my knees was sharp. I lost my breath to the gaps between the trees, and a big red bus was flying, number 58. The driver had a blue shirt on. All I could think as you struggled in my hands was the driver is wearing a sky. Inside the kitchen, we trembled. I held you beneath a chair leg, hovered it close to your Adam's apple, then grabbed a fork and stabbed it into your thigh. Ah, please stop, you yelped, speaking English again. The piano man played in the distance on a spiralling silver staircase. His clothes began to come off until he was naked, piano keys uprooted like large teeth as the melancholic tune became more and more haphazard. I started to cry then because heartbreak smelled like half-eaten rum cake at a breakfast table. I remembered that morning always, you see. The morning you went out for a white and gold packet of Marlboro lights and never came back. 
I remember the agonizing waits, months after, knocking our wedding photos face down on shelves and wailing in the musty wardrobe between your clothes. I turned over my sacrifices as if they were coins, bits of myself I'd lost in gloves, doorway cracks and printer ink heads. How I travel through echoes, silences, curved fingers over piano keys, all the routes I'd all the routes home I'd built for you in the static. I'm sorry, pardonnez-moi, quittons m'esprit, you pleaded, mixing languages as your bottom half began crumbling into bloody soil. I told you I'd chased your laughter through tunnels and pathways that I'd been following, and holding the chair leg pressed against your throat, I whispered all the things I'd done to resurrect you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks very much, Irenison. Uh, Joe Clayton is a professional storyteller who tells traditional tales from all over the world. She has performed at the Southbank Centre, Story Stock Circus, Dulwich Literary Festival, schools, community venues and festivals. She is storyteller in residence at Great Ormond Street Hospital and was practitioner in residence at Shakespeare's Globe. She writes original children's fiction and short stories for adults. Please welcome to the stage Joe Clayton. Hello, good evening. Um, thank you, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Um, I was going to do something funny, and I'm really sorry. Uh, life got in the way and it didn't get finished. So I'm going to do something that's not funny at all, because um, our illustrious leader uh, has pledged vast quantities of money to the mental health system. And um, I happen to be married to uh, a mental health community care coordinator, which is, gives you a really interesting perspective. Uh, so this one is called The Bridge. She stands on the bridge and watches herself jump. She sees herself climb on the railings and throw herself onto the cars. On the loop in her mind, she always stops before she hits. She doesn't need to think about that bit. There's a moment, a moment of leaping, two seconds of flying that looks so good, so inviting. It plays over and over and over again in her head on the tape reel she can't switch off, frantically synchronized with the heartbeat that is too fast, way too fast, 175 BPM, her whole body shaking and her breath far too shallow to be sustainable. It plays again, the climb, the leap, the flying. She looks at the drivers of the cars and she doesn't want to make a mess. That kind of thing could ruin your day. No one with children. No children in the car. She doesn't want to be here. She said she didn't want to come, but he wouldn't drop it, wouldn't let it lie. It's Christmas, he said. I don't want to be on my own for Christmas. And he cried 
like a child, and she gave in against her better judgment. She's only 150 yards away from the school where she got such good exam results. Each grey concrete landmark is washed in December drudgery and the slush of memories that she can't make sense of. Faces she would rather forget from such a long time ago. She watches the way the rusted steel bleeds through the concrete like fractured bones and the gutters choke with grey snow. The sky bleached of all colour. She inhales the petrol fumes, her heart pounding so hard she'll probably die of a heart attack before her imagination has a chance to destroy her. Mind over body or body over mind? Body and mind over reigning. At least the baby isn't here. The thought catches her off guard. The thought of her daughter, hardly a baby now, almost three, growing up without a mother, without a mad mother. Which is worse. Maybe he'll remarry, someone reliable, someone maternal. So often it was nearly the pair of them, mother and infant. It seemed far too easy to walk off a platform with a baby in a sling. Just a few baby steps. The length of a plastic school ruler. A strong gust of wind would do it. Sometimes it was just the baby who nearly went. All those windows in the flat being left open. Fresh air is so good for you. And babies are so small and vulnerable. And walking past the cars, a baby could be dropped, roll unexpectedly, or simply slip out of your hands, the wriggly little blighters. Then there would be prison, of course. But in prison, she could sit down. In prison, she could stop. She passed the little hospital on the way to the bridge. She thought maybe she would go to reception and tell them, I'm ill, I need help. But it was a private hospital, and she didn't know how they'd be with her. She was strictly NHS. And yet she loved her daughter. She really did. The child she loved deserved a better mother. She would walk for miles with the baby strapped into the buggy, walk and walk and walk without touching the child. She couldn't trust herself to touch. She didn't want to touch because she saw things on that loop in her brain, things that froze her blood and made her bang her head against the concrete floor of the kitchen. She couldn't trust herself. She needed to be out in public places. The library had gone and the playgroup. Austerity, they said. Tightening our belts, they said. So she pushed the baby, screaming and straining against its straps, back arched in defiance, face of a boiled beetroot, and she marched around the back streets and the houses, the rain streaming down her face and coat, washing her tears away, the puddles drowning in hers despair. On two occasions, she'd taken the phone book and tried to find a number. Social services, the Samaritans, doctors, psychiatrists, 999, someone, anyone, to come and get the baby before she hurt it, before she did something that could not be undone. The pictures in her head were so vivid, so real, and they would not go away. They would not stop. 
It wasn't the child's fault that it was always hungry and never slept. It wasn't the child's fault that it screamed all the time. It wasn't the child's fault it was born to two people so incapable of making the transition between being children and being parents. It wasn't the child's fault that the world seemed to have been drained of all that was good and true and real or that the foundations that it appeared to have been built on were as insubstantial as lovers' promises made in the heat of passion. I love you. Let's have a baby. An articulated lorry. She wondered if the driver had children, how old they were, where they lived. Was their mother waiting for her long-distance lover to return to the homestead or shucked up with a temporary bow? Was she lonely, trying to get the children to bed, tear-stained and exhausted at 3 a.m.? A husk of a woman? Or was she stood in leopard-skin leggings, paying off the babysitter as she got in from the club? She imagined the inquest into her death. The lorry driver's blank face as he stood in the dock accused of manslaughter, his children weeping. The report in the local paper. Woman jumps from bridge. They would use the Facebook picture of her holding the baby. The smile stuck falsely on her mouth and the gulf behind her eyes. His hand on her shoulder. It was so obvious in that picture. It was there for everyone to see if only they would look which of course they would when she'd be scraped, been scraped off the tarmac like a lump of strawberry jam. They would pore over that picture and pontificate. People she went to school with would make low concern noises and post theories on WhatsApp. There would be whispered text messages. Do you hear? Awful, isn't it? OMG, OMG. Always said she was a bit weird. The pulse in her neck throbs, pounding a deep drum beat into her brain. Make it stop. Make it stop. Please make it stop. There are no pedestrians, only cars. People returning home after Christmas. People shopping. Again, totaled on turkey and stuffed with stuffing. Again, she sees herself climbing, jumping, falling. Climbing, jumping, falling. She has one hand on the railing. One foot leaves the concrete frozen ground. Tears sting her eyes so she cannot see. Doctor after doctor after doctor. There's nothing wrong with you. It's all in your mind. The blood tests are normal. It's perfectly understandable to be a little off kilter with a new baby. They smiled professionally. They escorted her to the door and they said they would see her in three months, that everything was fine. The weight gain, the difficulty sleeping, the difficulty breastfeeding, the diarrhea, the panic, it was all perfectly normal, all part of being a new mother. I think I might have postnatal depression. The nurse at the clinic had laughed. <laughs> I don't think so. So she stopped, stopped expecting a solution trudged further and further into the eternal slush of her mind to a place where she was stood on a bridge at the edge of the world, watching the traffic, waiting for the right moment to make it stop. Her phone rang. His voice. Where are you? I'm on the bridge. 
the bridge over the London Road near LFI. Silence. Why are you on the bridge? Silence. Are you okay? Silence. I don't know. Her voice smile, small, like a child's, tight and coiled up as a wind-up toy. Stay where you are. I'm coming to get you. It was this, as if he could sense it all now, suddenly, acutely, in those three words. I don't know the weight of the gravity that was pushing down on her, the speed at which the world was moving, the desperation that she could hardly hold back. I'm nearly there. Can you see us? Uh-huh. Look, wave to Mummy. Can you see Mummy? She saw the child frantically waving and smiling, smiling from ear to ear. We see you, Mummy. We see you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Joe. Um, the next two writers, plus two writers in the last set, will all be reading from a new anthology of short stories about Caribbean elders. The collection is called Beautiful Blues and has been funded by Arts Council England. Uh, Jacqueline Crooks is a Jamaican-born British social action writer. She writes stories about Caribbean migration and subcultures. Her first book, The Ice Migration, is a collection of linked short stories um, and will be published by People Tree Press in autumn this year. The Ice Migration Project was funded by Arts Council England and involved Jacqueline and other writers collaborating with Caribbean and migrant elders to tell their stories. Please welcome Jacqueline to the stage. Beautiful Blues. I believe that my surgeon had musical hands like Oscar's. Hands that understood how to unpick the stars from the universe, realign them, string them back up like fairy lights in the sky. Oscar Peterson's hands had a life of their own. He'd be talking to the audience, having a big, big conversation, and at the same time, the man's fingers would be dancing on the keyboards, floating in the air. I watched the finger movements, tried to memorize them. I wanted to understand the calculations, the formulas of those movements. They seemed to hold some great secret to the universe. I wasn't in pain like. Everything was fine as long as I took the medication no infection, everything going to plan, the Ethiopian nurse said. She was a short, wide-hipped woman with grey-black skin and a pastel-coloured voice. She moved between the beds like she was stepping in and out of different worlds, whispering to each man in his semi-conscious state. After weeks of chemotherapy, the job was done. 
The surgeon had cut out my digestive system. In the hospital bed, I felt my body return to me, like the memory of an old-time song coming from a long way back. I heard the lost language of my country, French Creole, loud in my medicated mind. The music and the language sushing me to sleep in the hour just before dawn when the ward finally became quiet. There were four of us on the male ward. Daytime was a time of stand-up comedy, cracking jokes, laughing, poking fun at each other as we hobbled to and from the bathroom, tethered to drips. Men of different races and religions united in pain, emaciation, and indignity. One of the men had the same surname as me and the same illness. How strange was that? Like a story people in the Caribbean told at night, sitting on the porch in moonlight. What did it mean? What alignment of planets had brought the two of us together with the same illness? Then there was Sonny, a young man, the youngest of us. His intestines were hanging out and they couldn't figure how to keep them in. They kept trying different things, but nothing worked. In the end, Sonny got out of bed one Saturday morning, pulled on his black jeans and navy roll neck, clamped a gloved hand over his stomach. Well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die, but I'm going home to my family, he said. How could a man live like that? with his intestines hanging out. But then again, I saw men from the other Caribbean islands when we first came to London, walking the streets of Archway with their guts hanging out, metaphorically like. I wish I'd taken Sonny's number. I want to know how he is. Maybe if he had hands like Oscar's, he could have pushed his gut back in. I wonder if he made it. The four of us on the ward remind me of the times me, Bill, Rufus and Scrusby used to go to Ronnie Scott's back in the 70s, back in the day. Every Friday and Saturday night, for 30 years we went. <laughs> the stories I could tell. The biggest story, or one of the biggest, was Oscar Peterson performing live. I was close enough that first time to see his fingers I moved my own fingers, tried to move as fast as him. It wasn't possible. It wasn't possible to do anything that Oscar did. He'd found his power. The chemotherapy was grueling. Oh, I'll be straight with you. It took me over for a while. But that was when I found my power for the first time. Like finding the beautiful blues deep inside you, letting it spill out, a wavelength of blue notes, your power all charged up. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jacqueline. Um, also from the Beautiful Blues Anthology, um, we have Zifa Benson. 
She was born in London to Ghanaian parents and grew up in West Africa. She does four main things, writes, performs, curates, and teaches. She has performed her prose and poetry internationally at venues such as Tate Britain, London Literature Festival, Glastonbury Festival, the Houses of Parliament, on tour with the British Council in South Africa, and at the Shakespeare and Company Bookshop in Paris. Um, excuse me, sorry. Um, right, uh, she's also a long list judge for the Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Please welcome to the stage Zifa Benson. Hello. Hello, are you there? <laughs> Hi. So I'm going to be reading from one of Jacqueline's stories. Um, it's called Skirts and Cancans. When is dead really dead? That is a question no one can answer. My father used to tell us duppy stories at night when we were small. He told me a story when I was six. The whole town turned up to old Mr. Johnson's funeral. People lined the streets watching the rusty carriage clamber up the dirt road, pulled by two glossy black horses, the white wood carriage frame rattling like a skeleton. When the horses reached Repentier Cemetery, the driver of the carriage heard knocking from inside the coffin. He opened the coffin and Mr. Johnson sat up straight and raised his arms. I'm not dead yet. So I ask again, when is dead really dead? I grew up with my father's stories and to this day, I can't say if I believe in spirits, but I have my own stories to tell of things I can't explain. Remember, we were at war back then, when Guyana was British Guyana. We had blackouts like everyone else, shortages of flour and kerosene, but we didn't starve because the farmers were still producing cassava, plantains, sweet potatoes, and adobes. The biggest difference was that merchant ships from England and America didn't come as often. I remember the old year's night parties. Everyone wore organdy ruffle skirts with cancans under their dresses. Me in my rose ruffle skirt, leaning up, thinking of the future beyond the gold fields. We had five yards of starched petticoats under our dresses. They rustled like bushes in the night, in the night wind as we danced. When the men twirled us across the dance floor, you could see the rainbow cloths swirling and stirring up magic. I have a lucky number, 13. I was born on the 13th day. Our house in Guyana, where I was born, was number 13. And the flat I rented in London was on the 13th floor. As well as luck, I have gold. We all have gold, but mine had never been for decoration. My family gave me the gold ring for security, something I could pawn in times of hardship. 
Only the dead have no need of security. Traditionally, the ring should have come from my mother, but she died giving birth to my sister when I was very young. Six children left without a mother, three boys and three girls. My father worked on the railways, so my 12-year-old sister raised us. She was the one who gave me the ring when I came of age. I still wear it every day. When I was a teenager, we used to go to late night cinema. We would cycle home, the headlamps on our bikes illuminating and enlarging the branches of the bush that reached out into the narrow track like claws. My friend and I had gone straight from a party to the cinema wearing our ruffled skirted dresses, pedaling hard, our can-can skirts staring the air. It was very early morning, still dark. We slowed on the crescent-shaped bend, air rushing towards me like someone breathing into me. The higglers could be heard just ahead, setting up their wooden stalls for their early morning customers who disappeared into the bush, taking a little more of the darkness with them. Ahead, I saw two people fighting, a man and a woman. They were pushing and tearing at each other's clothes. I braked and my friend pulled up beside me. What are those foolish people doing fighting this time of night, I said. What people? The Higglers ain't doing nothing, she replied. No, not them. Those people there, I pointed. But the people had disappeared. Had they ever even been there? One is dead, really dead. There was another time more strange. It was Easter Sunday, and I set, and I set out for church at five o'clock in the morning. I can't remember why I set off so early while everyone at home was just rising and moving about in their white bedcloths and head rags. That strange time in the morning when there is nothing but the smell of herbs and damp, I sat on the church wall waiting for the church to open. Some minutes later, a man in blue overalls walked towards me carrying a lamp. The lamplight was white like a thousand moons spreading across the front of the church. Sir, what time is the service beginning? I asked. He didn't answer. He just carried on walking until he disappeared into some fruit trees in the churchyard. A while later, the church doors opened and the vicar appeared. I told him what happened and he nodded his head. That was the sexton. He used to care for the church. He's buried in the churchyard over there. I wasn't scared then, and I'm still not scared now. I still see things, even in this country. I was on the train this week traveling to Sussex. The carriage was almost empty, but for a couple of people. I saw the face of an African man in the reflection of the window. He was wiping his brow over and over again. I hadn't seen anyone like that in the carriage, and when I looked around, sure enough, there was no African man there. Yet, the reflection stayed, staring at me. I will never be scared. I only have one sister left. 
the oldest one died. I'm not afraid of the known or unknown. I have my security. I have my, coal, I have my gold. I don't have the ruffle skirts and can-cans anymore. Thank you. Thank you, Zipa. Um, last in this set, um, um, our next writer is Carla Ballantyne. Uh, she works with dead people. She's your average chick who just happens to know as much about corpses as she does about cocktails. After studying forensics, Carla assisted pathologists with post-mortems for years before eventually becoming technical curator of the world's most famous pathology museum, which is, of course, Bart's Pathology Museum here in London. When it comes to death, she's a world-class expert. And I have to say that one of her fans, who is only 11 years old, has come down to see her tonight from North London. Please welcome to the stage Carla Valentine. So I was supposed to be on a lot earlier. Um, I wasn't because I have a full-time job in the museum um, and NBC filmers decided to ruin my schedule. So all I can say is please buy my book, buy it when it comes out so that I can go part-time so that I don't have to like, you know, be late for things like this. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit um, in chapter five of my book, which is out on 20th of April. Um, it's called Past Mortems. There is a leaflet over at the back if you're interested in finding out about dead stuff. Watching someone carry out an autopsy is in many ways like watching someone have sex. This is what struck me the first time I saw one. Now before you close this book in misplaced disgust or conversely read on with expectant carnal glee, let me explain. An autopsy presents as an intimate process between two people, eviscerator and evisceratee. The eviscerator, or technician, removes the organs. The other, the cadaver, is eviscerated. Under normal circumstances, a person wouldn't be privy to this activity, so it feels forbidden and taboo. A bit voyeuristic. There is a transgressive element to just standing there and watching. There is nudity. That's the cadaver, not the technician, hopefully. Body fluids, musky odors, maybe some awkwardness and tentativeness at first. And then hands begin to move deftly across naked flesh, knowing the best moves to make, knowing the dance, because it's a dance that's been done a thousand times before. It's an intimacy you feel privileged to be a part of. The eviscerator may be someone that you've seen in person frequently, but never like this. You may have discussed post-mortem procedures over and over with him during your training as one discusses sex over and over again with your friends. But you've never actually seen them do it. Not until now, the first time, when you're invited to lose your PM virginity and witness the act in all its technical glory. I think the poet undertaker Thomas Lynch put it best 
when he said both sex and death are horizontal mysteries that possess similarly disconcerting effects. Horizontal, yes. Mysterious, certainly. Disconcerting, absolutely, for most. But for us in the business of death, the autopsy is a mystery that needs to be solved. I'd lost my autopsy virginity when I was in university, but everything I'd done in my life had been building up to that moment. During my gap year, serendipity struck for me. My estranged father moved to a large house in Worthing with a self-contained flat in its annex, and it just so happened my friend's mother, Sarah, was an embalmer at a funeral home in a town not far from Worthing. At around seven months pregnant with a little girl, Sarah needed someone to help her maneuver the heavier cadavers and undress them, rather than constantly ask the funeral directors at the company, J. Elwood and Sons, to assist. They were usually busy with their own tasks. This was the ideal experience for me. Young and strong and very enthusiastic, I slipped into the voluntary role in order to learn all I could about embalming. While some of my friends took their year out in exotic places, to me it seemed worth heading to an unfamiliar little town in the south coast for a while in order to strengthen family ties as well as gain some experience with the dead and find out if I actually had the stomach for this kind of work. So that's what I did. I remember having coffee with my three closest friends a day or two before I hopped on the train with just one large case and a handbag. We were all in the same age, embarking on completely different journeys. One was pregnant, one was heading to live in France and then Spain, and then one was going traveling in Southeast Asia. I was off to wash and dress the dead. This might have been my year off from education, but it was really the period when I learned the most. It was there that I experienced a funeral home for the first time, because I'd been far too young to visit either of my grandparents when they passed away. It was all new to me. The solemn, quiet hallways of J.L. Wood and Sons, the ever-present soothing scent of flowers, the warmth from the heaters and the ambient lighting casting shadows that softened every sharp edge. Even people's grief seemed soft to hear, the gentle hush instilling a cloistered calm into everyone who passed through. All of this was juxtaposed with the sound of the boisterous boys in the back as they washed down hearses and trim coffins, and in the tinny radio in Sarah's prep room that belted out popular music that hadn't really been popular since the 70s and 80s. In an unusual way, this was heaven for me, and I felt comfortable. For the first time in my life, I was independent, following my dreams and doing something I wanted to do for years. Unlike much of the population, I associate funeral homes with peace and tranquility. I'd wake up at the crack of dawn to be at J.L. Wooden Sons a couple of towns away at an early hour. So sometimes, when fatigue hit, I would wander off into one of the suites adjoining the chapels of rest and take a nap on the sofa, obviously only when it was not occupied. And much to the distress of the company's long-suffering cleaner, who'd often jump out of her skin at my unexpected presence. Spending a drowsy hour on the sofa after helping to prep the decedents gave me time to reflect on what I'd learned and consider my future path. I was at peace there. Even then, I knew that positions in mortuaries opened up very rarely, and embalming could be an alter alternative career for me even a skill I could perfect and have under my belt before a job opportunity in a mortuary came about. 
I learned exactly what an embalmer does, and it's a procedure I passionately believe everyone should know about for two reasons. One, so that it doesn't get confused with the role of the APT, which is me, and also so that an informed decision can be made about whether or not you'd like it for your family member or even for yourself, because it's not required by law. Embalming is an aesthetic cosmetic procedure, procedure that's carried out at the undertaker's rather than the mortuary, although it can happen at the family home. Autopsies, on the other hand, can only happen at mortuaries. There's no such thing as a DIY post-mortem, at least not a legal one. I didn't, I didn't know what to expect, and I had no idea what spending time with an embalmer, particularly a female one, would be like. One thing missing from B-movie horrors are females in antagonist roles, so I'd always imagined embalmers to be like the weird male scientists seen in those films like Bella Lugosi in The Corpse Vanishes, or Vincent Price in Scream and Scream Again. And of course, Sarah was nothing like that. Instead, the only image I associated with Sarah was that of Fenella Fielding in Carry On Screaming. It may sound silly, but if you've seen the film in which Fenella's character, Valeria, and her brother carry out a strange procedure on beautiful young living women to turn them into shop mannequins, you might not be entirely surprised to learn there's actually a similarity when it comes to embalming. Modern embalming is the process of replacing the deceased body fluids with preservative chemicals in order to retard decay. It's the story of Pygmalion's statue in reverse. That which was once human and vulnerable becomes serene and azoic, just like in Carry On Screaming. It's done so that the vibrant palates and infernal stench of decomposition isn't witnessed or experienced by the family and friends of the deceased if the funeral requires an open coffin viewing. It's not as common in the UK as it is in the US, but for those who do require it, it will cost extra and is often called hygienic treatment although the term is a bit of a misnomer, as the deceased are no more dangerous if they are not embalmed, except in the case of some infectious diseases. That's why it's important to note that it's not required by law. Some funeral directors are very upfront about their costs. They explain the procedure will add around £150 to the bill. Outside London, it's usually around £70. And they won't perform it unless they receive prior informed consent. Others, however, will call the procedure cosmetic treatment and railroad the bereaved into paying for it at best, or at worst, just go ahead and do it without permission, adding the cost on later. On my first day at JL Woodinson's, after I'd satisfied myself that Sarah was nothing like Valeria from that cheesy film, I asked her why she wanted to be an embalmer, and she said to help people. She assured me that at JL Woodinson's, the procedure was only carried out when families were fully aware of the costs and requested it themselves. I wanted to gain some experience, so I dived straight in. The case in question was an old lady, around 75, nothing too dramatic for a first-timer like me. In the prep room, heavily pregnant Sarah waddled towards me with the garments I was seen to become so familiar with. Cotton gown, plastic apron. While I covered my clothes, she pulled her long, dark Jane Russell hair up over her ample bosom and into a ponytail and then swaddled her swollen belly with a green plastic apron, stretched so taut around the bump that horizontal white streaks appeared. She seemed glamorous and competent and younger than her 40-odd years, but maybe it was the pregnancy glow giving her a youthful aura. It struck me as odd 
to have so many archetypal stages of female development in one room. The unborn baby, myself as the maiden, Sarah as the mother, and the deceased as the crone. All of us overshadowed by the final unapologetic figure of death itself. And for those of you familiar, the maiden, mother, and crone is a metaphor for female life stages and the moon. Sarah told me to pop some gloves on and she instructed me to just feel the hand of the deceased. It's important to get used to the cold, she said. It can be a bit strange initially. I reached out tentatively to touch, for the first time, someone who had died, acutely aware that I was crossing a boundary. Not only was I about to have an experience there was no going back from, I also realized I was doing so without the consent of the woman on Sarah's table. Yeah, I was only touching her hand, but she wasn't present to tell me whether or not I had permission to, so I had to project it to her myself, mentally explaining that I was part of the embalming procedure, the process her family had agreed to, and it was therefore not a violation. And while her cold hand was in mine, I realized I'd never held my own grandma's hand. Never. I couldn't. Not with those weird brown arthritis contraptions she used to wear on both wrists, her twisted fingers popping out of the top like curled twigs. Instead, I had this moment of intimacy with a stranger. The lady had been in the fridge for a while, and the skin of her hand was firm like pale putty, yet cooler than a pint of milk. Sarah was right. I'd never felt anything quite like it. I had the sense of dipping my toe into very cold water, and even after I'd removed it, the cold remained a constant reminder of that other subterranean world. Thank you, Carla. We're 